So there was a doctor, a uh, compassionate doctor, and he traveled deep into the jungle to provide care for a primitive tribe. It was this group of people uh, who had uh, contracted a very contagious disease. And the disease was curable, but they didn't have the cure. And so he went on his own into the jungle to provide a cure out of love and compassion for these people. And he had his own medical equipment flown in, and when he got there, he quickly and accurately diagnosed the disease of everything that was going on. And uh, he even had additional antibiotics ready. He had antibiotics ready for them, and he had more on standby, ready to be flown in at a moment's notice. See, this doctor was independently wealthy, and he could afford to do all of this, both to provide the cure and to refuse any kind of remuneration from the people that he helped to cure. But as the the doctor sought to provide care, the people who were afflicted with this disease held him at arm's length and just refused to receive his care. They weren't quite sure about him. They would rather just take care of themselves. They wanted to heal on their own terms. They refused to come to him and receive his help. And as you can imagine, this was pretty discouraging for the doctor. You know, I mean, uh, he had, of his own expense and his own effort and initiative had come to this place, but it didn't deter him. He, he didn't leave, he didn't go anywhere. He continued just to offer his help and to befriend people there day after day, after week, after month. Until finally, at some point, a few brave young men decided they were gonna go to this guy and see what he had to offer. And so they did, they came to him to receive what he was freely providing. Now, I wanna ask you a question right there in that moment. What did the doctor feel? Like what was going on in his heart in that moment? Was he resentful? Man, what did it take him so long to come for? Did they have any idea everything I did for them to be here? Jerks. Is that what he thought? I think he felt joy, deep and abiding joy. Do you know why? Because that's exactly why he came. He came to heal them. He came of his own initiative to bring them a cure. And his deepest desire was simply that they would come to him and receive it free of charge. It brought him joy. You know, friends, it's, I might have submit to you, it's the same with us and with God, with us, and with Jesus. That Jesus, the great physician, came into our world full of sickness, full of our own uh, messes, and even our own refusal, keeping him at arm's length, refusing to come to him. But, but he, he stayed, he stayed near. And day after day, after week, after month, after year, after decade, he stuck with us until we came to him. And his heart's reaction, his deepest heart's desire is for you to come. And what he feels in that moment when you come to him, even if it's you coming again uh, for the same sin that you seem to, to keep being beset by, his heart is joy in that moment. That's exactly why he came. It's so that you would come to him. You know, sometimes I think uh, we're a lot like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, that when uh, we find ourselves uh, beset with our own weakness and and in our own sin and in our own mess, uh, sometimes the last thing we wanna do is actually run to God. We we tend to be like Adam and Eve and we, we hide ourselves from him. And we think that, oh, I can just fix this on my own. I can just heal this on my own. I can make sense of life on my own. That somehow if I came to him, it might diminish his, his forgiveness or diminish his grace or cheapen it somehow if I, if I come with that again. But you know the exact opposite is true? He longs for you to come to him. The first time, 
the second time, the third, the 300th, the 5,000th. He longs for you to come to him and it's his great joy and delight when you do. In fact, that's the whole point. He came to heal. Well, uh, in 1651, there was a Puritan guy by the name of Thomas Goodwin and he wrote this book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And uh, Goodwin was a pastor and what he really wanted was for the people that he cared for to know that even though God was, uh, Jesus was ascended and risen and seated at the right hand of God, that uh, he was no less near to them or no less concerned for them, that he wasn't far off and distant, but he was near and compassionate and loving. And so he wrote this book and one of the things he writes, he says uh, that Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by, how would you fill in the blank if you were writing the book? What would you say increases Jesus' joy and his glory and his happiness? Maybe uh, you would say uh, it increases Jesus' joy when his disciples forsake everything to follow him. When they repent and they turn and they, they leave it all behind and they follow him. Would that be true? Yeah, it would totally be true. That that would bring Jesus great joy when we do that, and does. It would also be true to say that um, we see Jesus rejoicing uh, when uh, our our faithfulness in a little bit prepares us to be faithful in a lot, when when we're faithful to him. Even in a little bit, that brings him joy. Is that true? Yeah, totally true. And, And he rejoices in the way that the Father reveals truth to the childlike and not the proud and haughty and prideful. That brings him joy. He gives it to the simple ones among us. But do you know how Goodwin, the way he completes the sentence is is a bit surprising. Look at what he says, increases Jesus' joy and comfort and happiness. They're increased and they're enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth, his people. Jesus gets great joy and great comfort when we come to him and when he forgives us. Now that brings me comfort when he forgives me. How about you? But do you know, I'm gonna argue a little bit this morning that that I think it, it brings Jesus greater comfort than it even does to me and greater joy because that's why he came. That's why he came because he loves me and he loves you. Well, we're in our second week in this series called uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners. And it's based, uh, the insights uh, of this series are based in large part from insights on this, from this book written by a pastor in Naperville named Dane Ortland. Uh, this book called Gentle and Lowly. And a lot of what he writes is inspired by what we just read from Thomas Goodwin 400 years ago, that Puritan. And uh, By the way, I said it last week, but we have copies of these for everyone. We have at least one per household, I know, that'll be freely given to you. So uh, you're gonna get them closer to Christmas, just so you know. But if you wanna get one now, that's fine. I just wanted you to know so that if you buy one, you don't come to me like, come on, Josh, why did I buy one? You've given us one for free. Now you know, you're gonna get one free too. Well, uh, today, uh, I want you to see that Jesus delights in you coming to him, even in your sin, especially in your sin. He delights for you to come to him. We saw last week that he is gentle and lowly in heart, as we read from Matthew 11 this morning, and that when you strip strip everything else away, at his heart, at his core, we see that Jesus is gentle and lowly toward his own. and when we, what we're gonna see this morning is that when we sin, God isn't put off by us, that he keeps us at arm's length going, okay, you've, you've finally crossed the line forever and I'm done with you. But actually what happens is when he sees us in our sin and even our besetting sin, he has great compassion on us and his heart towards us increases to forgive us so that we could be clean and so that we could have joy and that we could have life the way he really designed life to be. Friends, that's his heart 
toward you. He longs for you to come to him. And uh, it's kind of a long introduction this morning, but let me just say this before, and then we're gonna dive into Hebrews chapter four and five today. Uh, friends, just, just know if you're like, is God really like that? Does he really delight for me to come to him even in all my filth? He does. And you know, the reason is Jesus is not like you and me. He's not. He's not a judgmental and easily put off. He's not manipulating and conniving. He's not plotting like, oh, how am I gonna deal with him today? What am I gonna do today? He's not cold and calculating or shunning or passive aggressive in his attitude toward us. He's, he said it himself, he's gentle and lowly in heart. He longs for you and I to come to him. Now, uh, does he deal with our sin? Is he angry about our sin? Certainly. Probably more than we could fathom. But he also loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in our sin, but he draws near to us to provide a fix for our sin so that we could be with him. And so his default attitude towards you and towards me, messed up as we are, is to be gentle and lowly and compassionate. And he delights to do it. That's what you're gonna see this morning. Let me pray, and then we're gonna be in Hebrews chapters uh, four and five. Um, Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for his compassionate heart toward us, for his love toward us. Thank you, as uh, David wrote in the Psalms, Lord, you don't deal with us according to our sin, but according to your goodness. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak uh, to and through me as we look at your word today and as I teach your word. Might my words be your own? And Holy Spirit, would you encourage our hearts? Uh, comfort us where we need comforted. Uh, prod us where we need to be prodded to return to you. And uh, let us do it with, with full confidence knowing how much you love us and, and freely receive us back. Or even receive us for the first time. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. Well, I mentioned we're gonna be in Hebrews, and uh, if you got your Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. Chapter four, and I'm gonna start in verse 14 this morning. Verse 14 of Hebrews starts like this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest. And I'm gonna stop there for just a minute because you may have heard of, of, of a priest and, and know what a priest is, but what's a high priest? And you might know what a priest is uh, contemporarily, but you might not know what a priest necessarily is according to God's word and in the Bible, like in the Old Testament. Well, let me back up just a bit and give you a little background so that you can make sense of, of where we're headed today, in case you're unfamiliar with it. it. God in the Old Testament, what he does is he establishes three offices uh, for people to fulfill, and to, to fill, excuse me, uh, to maintain right relationship with him. And it's his way of, of keeping us close to him and for him to show his closeness to us. And he does it through these three offices. And I'm gonna paint with kind of a broad brush, pretty simplistically, but prophet, priest, and king. Have you heard of those before? Uh, the prophet, uh, you might draw a down arrow if you write prophet. Because the, the role of the prophet is ultimately, again, very simplistically, to speak God's words to us, to his people. The prophet spoke on behalf of God to people. Well, then the priest, you might think of that just the opposite and draw an arrow up because the priest then would speak to God on behalf of the people in the Old Testament. And he would be their representative before God. He would mediate between them and God. That's what the priest did. And then the office of king, somebody who is a king, they ruled and reigned as God's representative. And so uh, the, the, the prophet speaks from God to us. The priest speaks on our behalf to God and represents us before God. And the king rules as God's representative, representing God to us. Do you see? So those three offices. Well, the, the, there was a specific uh, role of a high priest. And, and the high priest would have... Uh, would have simply been um, somebody with a special position among the priests. 
And the primary purpose of the, the person who is the high priest was to be uh, that representative and mediator between the people and, and a perfect and holy God. And they specifically would serve in the tabernacle or in the temple. And on the day of atonement, uh, when sacrifice was made for sin, the, the high priest would actually go into God's presence symbolically in the Holy of Holies and mediate on behalf of all of God's people with a holy and perfect God, making atonement for sin so that we could be near to God. Well, all of this pointed forward ultimately to what Jesus would do. Because Jesus ultimately would be the perfect prophet speaking to us from God, he's God's word. He'd be the perfect priest and high priest representing and mediating between us and God. And he of course is the king of the universe and he rules and, and reigns as God over all creation. But I bring that up because in our passage this morning, we're gonna see it a couple times that, that Jesus is a great high priest. And in fact, the whole point of the New Testament letter uh, and book of Hebrews is that uh, Jesus is the high priest to beat all high priests. Like he's the ultimate one. He's the perfect one. Every other priest in the Old Testament who represented uh, people to God, uh, they still sinned themselves. But we're gonna see Jesus was without sin. And so even the high priest, when he would go and make atonement for a sin and offer a sacrifice, he did it not just for all the people, but for himself. And, and priests were not perfect. In fact, many of them in the Old Testament were pretty messed up <laughs> in some pretty big ways. But not Jesus. See, since then, we have a great high priest. And he's passed through the heavens, not just, not just through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, but, but through time, through, through, the, through the heavens to be with God the Father, seated at his right hand. We're speaking here of Jesus, the Son of God. He says, since we have that great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Hold tightly to what we believe and not let go of it. And he goes on, he says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. You know, we might think that uh, Jesus being sinless as, as our high priest, maybe, you know, he just, he just rules and reigns and he's up there kind of looking down on us and with his thumb on us a little bit, disappointed, mm, wringing his hands. No, actually, we have a high priest who doesn't do that, but he sympathizes with us, we're gonna see this morning. He sympathizes with us, he understands us, he gets it. He sympathizes with our weakness. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Except there's a big difference between this high priest and all the other priests. Yet without sin. He never sinned. Hold on to that, because that's a big difference we're gonna talk about this morning. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find the grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's that up arrow, right? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he, Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. We're gonna circle back through this passage a little bit this morning. But, but first, let's kind of start here at the end. He, he can deal with us gently. Friends, I want you to see Jesus can deal with you and with me gently. He can deal gently with us. Why is that? Well, we, we saw because he himself is beset with weakness or as uh, chapter four, verse 15 says, and we've read already, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize. He's, he's in solidarity and in, in oneness, united with us, and we're united with him. Jesus being able to sympathize, uh, that word sympathy in the text, if we would go back to Hebrews 4, uh, and, and I could show you, like, peel back and look at the Greek word underneath it, you'd see that the word sympathy is more than just, like, pity. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Or that Jesus just, you know, feels sorry for us. Does he have emotion toward us? For sure. Uh, but it means more than that. It actually, if, if you pull it apart, it means that he, he co-suffers with us. He suffers with us. He doesn't just look at us and feel sorry. He, he actually enters in and he feels it with us. 
because he knows what it's like, because he himself has been beset with the weakness of living in human flesh. It's his solidarity with us. He's for us. In fact, let's look again at verse 15. Uh, see, the, the, the crazy thing about this verse is what we're told about why Jesus is so close and with us in our pain. It's because he's been tempted, as we are, in every respect, yet without sin. Without sin. Uh, Ortland in his book here writes this, the real scandal then of Hebrews 4.15 is what we're told about why Jesus is so close with his people in their pain. He's been tempted or tested, the word can also denote, just as we are. Not only that, but in every respect as we are. The reason that Jesus is so close and in such close solidarity with us is that the, the difficult path we are on is not unique to us. He's journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine, but it's also that before any relief even comes, he's with us in our troubles. He, he's, he's like the doctor who's endured the same disease. That's Jesus. He can sympathize with you and with me. He, he knows what it's like. He, he gets it. Well, why does he get it? Because uh, he was made like us in every respect. Hebrews Two also tells us that he had to be made like us in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest for us. You know, a lot of times we think of Jesus, we think of his deity, rightfully so, because he is God. He's a member of the Trinity. He's holy and perfect and powerful. But have you taken time lately to think about his humanity? That while he's fully God, he's also fully human. That he... It wasn't God who decided, I'm not gonna be God anymore, now I'm gonna be a human being. He was God who added humanity to his deity, fully and completely. Fully God, fully man. The God-man, we refer to him at times. He, he was made like us in every respect. Well, the, when Jesus did that, it was about 2,000 years ago. And I don't know about you, but if I was God, and, and I was gonna enter into my creation, I think I'd make a big splash. How about you? I'd be like, dun, 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 here I am. Right? Not Jesus. He does it with humility, out of a gentle and lowly heart. He actually, the, the way he enters in is he's born. Uh, he goes through nine months in his mother Mary's womb, and, and he's born in obscurity in a small agricultural town. Not only this, but he was born to a teenage girl Mary being about 14 years old, out of wedlock, single mom. Uh, she was a single mom who was unmarried. That's the way Jesus came into the world, putting on flesh. He was adopted then by Mary's fiance and future husband, a blue collar guy named Joseph. And Joseph swung a hammer for a living. And Jesus' life up until about age 30 was lived pretty much in total obscurity. We don't know much about his first 30 years on this earth. I mean, as far as we can tell, he grew up uh, playing and interacting with his younger brothers and sisters. We know uh, two of his brothers, James and Jude, ended up writing two books of the Bible, and we know he had at least two sisters, because in one place it's referenced his sisters, so plural, means at least two. And he grew up like any other normal person would. When he got older, the assumption is, you know, he would have gone to school like everyone else, and the assumption is, as he got older, being the oldest, he probably worked a job with his daddy, his adopted daddy, Joe, swinging a hammer for a living, carrying a lunch pail to work. That was Jesus. We don't know it 100%, but it's pretty likely that's what he did. And um, he probably didn't have long hair, but short hair. And uh, he, he would have looked like a typical Jewish Middle Eastern guy of the day. So he didn't have blue eyes and long pro-V hair, I don't think. Normal guy. That was Jesus. A normal man come to normal people. He would have looked pretty masculine, though. He was likely in good shape. He was a laborer, worked with his hands, had calluses, I'm sure. Uh, walked everywhere he went. So he was probably in decent shape. 
But Isaiah, the prophet, tells us there was no beauty or majesty in him that would attract us to him physically. So Jesus looked like a normal guy with a lunchbox and a tool belt going to work every day. That's who he was. He became fully 100% human. Now consider his humanity. The the difference between Jesus and us is simply that he didn't sin. He never sinned. But no, he was a normal man. He wasn't a sinless superman. He was a sinless man. So here's what this means. He woke up with bedhead. Thought about that? He did. He, uh, He probably had pimples when he was 13 years old. I bet he did. He knew and knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, even suffocated, tortured, and killed. He he knows what all of that's like. We read in the Bible that he knows what it's like to be lonely. His best friends totally abandoned him in the moment he needed him most. I mean, if if Jesus had chosen for his incarnation to happen in our day and age, and not 2,000 years ago, uh, the likelihood is that by the time he turned 30, 33, uh, all of his friends on Facebook and followers on Twitter would have totally abandoned him. He probably would have been banned from the platform entirely. And this is the guy, though, who would never unfriend you. That's Jesus and his humanity. He had, he had and he has perfect solidarity with us. See, even for eternity, he doesn't give up his humanity that he put on. But he'll be with us forever. He became like us in every respect, so he knows what it's like to be tempted like I am and like you are. He's been tempted in every respect with one big difference. without sin. (laughs) See, Jesus, when he was tempted, he didn't give in to sin. He withstood the temptation. He endured through it and pressed through it, which which tells me he knows the depth of temptation and, and how hard it is to live the Christian life and how hard life is in general better than I do myself because he endured through it. Uh, Zane Hodges uh, writes this in, uh, when he's commenting on the book of Hebrews. He says, it may indeed be argued and has been, talking about this very passage, that the one who fully resists temptation, only the one, excuse me, who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Thus, the sinless one, he's talking about Jesus here, has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could ever have for a fellow sinner. He's saying Jesus gets it more than we do. Let me try to explain this uh, one other way. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote and said something similar. He, was, he, he spoke about a man who was walking against the wind. You ever been in just a really strong wind? And he compares it to temptation. And he says once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, uh, many of us, we just, we give in and we lie down. So we don't have to fight it anymore. And and thus, we don't know what it would have been like, what the wind might have been like 10 minutes later. We only know it up to the moment we give in. But, he says, Jesus never laid down. He never laid down. He endured all of our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. Only he truly knows the cost. Friends, sometimes we might think that, well, Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. So can he really know what it's like in my nine to five? Can he know what it's like in in my house, in, in my life, in my world? I mean, can he really relate? He's high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the father. Can can he really know? Yeah. And in fact, I would argue his sinlessness points to the fact that he knows it better than you and I know it ourselves. Because while you and I are standing in the wind and at some point we lay down, Jesus endured through it all. He knows how hard it is. He knows 
the power of temptation. He knows what it takes to make it through. Ortland also writes here in Gentle and Lowly, he says, consider then your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out all of our emotions, when, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we're laughed at by the impressive. In short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and he sits close to us and embraces us with us. Solidarity. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. But the Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Friends, uh, Jesus gets it. He gets it. That's why uh, chapter five, verse two tells us that he can deal gently with us because he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, he knows the full extent of what it's like. He knows the exact right thing to say in the exact right moment and the exact right measure of grace and mercy to come to you and I with because he knows. He's been through it all to the other side and endured without sin. He knows it better than we know it ourselves. And that's why he can deal with, uh, the writer of Hebrews here says, the ignorant and the wayward. He can deal with them gently. You know, I don't, we, we kind of look at this, we might think, okay, deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Well, if he's gonna deal gently with somebody, the ignorant and the wayward, that's probably not me. Like, because I've sinned pretty big. Like the ignorant and the wayward must be people with just, you know, kind of mild sins that, you know, maybe they uh, stole a candy bar from the grocery store when they were 12 or something, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not mine. I don't fit into that category. Well, uh, let me push back. Because the, the ignorant and the wayward, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer here is, is constantly interacting back with the Old Testament and saying how all of this points forward to Jesus, our perfect high priest, right? And one of the things you read about in the Old Testament is that basically, if you boil it all down, there were two categories of sin. There was sin that was unintentional. You might think of it as accidental. You might think of it as when we sin in ignorance. We just didn't know, right? But then there's also a second category of sin. If, if one is unintentional, what's the other? Intentional, like I did it on purpose. I knew it was wrong, I did it anyway. Uh, Numbers 15 describes it as uh, with a heavy hand before the Lord. Now, uh, the reality is that, uh, and I think when he's saying ignorant and wayward, ignorant refers to that unintentional, wayward refers to that I'm intentionally just going off the path, I'm wayward. Guess what? All of my sins fit into those two categories either unintentional, I didn't know, or most of them, intentional. <laughs> How about yours? And wayward. So, so uh, the writer of Hebrews here isn't saying that, that he deals with the ignorant and, and the wayward, like the, the ignorant and wayward just somehow have, have a lesser measure of sin. He's saying he can deal gently with everyone who's sinned, no matter the category. He can deal gently with you. Because he himself is beset with weakness. See, friends, every sinner who comes to him, no matter their sin, no matter their offense, no matter the severity of it, the point here is that Jesus deals and can deal gently with them. He does, with you and with me. The the thing, though, that brings out... uh, 
The tenderness and gentleness from Jesus isn't the severity of our sin, whether it's really severe or not really severe, but it's whether or not you actually come to him. That's the thing that determines his tenderness and brings it out. If we come to him, he's gentle and he can deal gently. But if you never come to him in his gentleness, the judgment you'll face for your sin is unfathomably fierce. Come to him. And friend, uh, what's curious is that when we examine God's heart, we see that his great delight is to deal gently with us. He can deal gently with us and he delights to. You know, I... I don't know, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, yeah, so he deals gently with me today. But what about next week when it's the same thing or next year? I mean, is he just dealing gently with me today because, you know, kind of like when I deal with some people at work and I think, well, if I really said what I was really thinking, it would totally just, it would, it would crush them and I can't do that right now. I have to deal gently. No. Jesus deals gently because that's his heart. That's his heart, that's who he is. And he delights to do it. It's not like, a, oh, I guess I have to deal gently with him today. No, it's, he, he longs to, he delights to deal gently with you and with me. He delights to. Uh, later in Hebrews, uh, the writer tells us in chapter two, he gives us a clue of why Jesus endured the cross, of, of why he deals gently with us. Uh, chapter 12, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with this verse. We read in chapter 12, verse two, that Jesus, uh, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. That sounds strange, doesn't it? That he endured the cross. The cross is just unbelievably awful. If you get into the details of what crucifixion was like. But Jesus endured that for joy. Is he a masochist? What gives? Well, we've thought about Jesus' humanity. Let's flip and think about his deity for a little bit. In his deity, think of some of the joy he has. Like what, what could the joy be that he doesn't yet have that he's willing to endure the horrors of the cross to receive that joy? What joy doesn't he have? I mean, he has the joy of sinless perfection, of perfect relationship with the Father. He has the joy of living e eternally in that. He has the joy of eternal contentment and perfect holiness and perfect uh, perfection. Let me submit to you, the one joy that he doesn't have is the joy of making you and I irrevocably clean to be with him forever. I would argue that the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross was you and me. The joy of his love for you, of making you clean, of fixing everything that is so messed up in your heart and in mine. That's his joy. That's his deep delight. It's the only thing that he was missing. His, his joy and his delight is to heal us. So that means when, when I come to him with my sin, when I come to him with, with just the truckload of stuff that's messed up about me, he doesn't hold me at arm's length. He, he doesn't hold me back and hold me off and just be like, really, Josh, again? No, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm actually tapping in to his deepest desire, to his deep heart of compassion toward me. It's his joy and delight to deal gently with me and with you. Not to condemn us, not to pour out retribution on us, not to heap guilt and hold it over your head or mine, not to bring down wrath upon us. His delight and his joy is to heal us and to make you new. He delights to do it. Unlike us, he doesn't get tired 
with people in their need. He runs toward it. In fact, it increases his heart and his joy for you and I to be comforted by him and to be forgiven by him. And you know, it lines up really with uh, what Jesus said uh, also in Luke chapter 15. He said, just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. If you think you're too far gone to ever come to Jesus, if you think that you've come to him in the past but you've messed it up beyond repair, let me just tell you, you are dead wrong. Like he loves you like you cannot imagine. And there's more joy over you coming back to him or coming to him for the first time than you could ever imagine. His joy, not just your own. And I think his might even be greater. It's his deep desire, do you realize that? His deepest desire is to deal gently with you and with me. It's why Jesus came. It's why he died for you. Not only for your peace, but for his delight and joy. Uh, 1 Timothy, Paul writes uh, to Timothy, he says, uh, look, you see God's desire. He wants everyone to be saved. That's why he's so patient. He wants everyone to turn to him. He, He wants them to come to know the truth. He wants them to know Jesus, to know him. Because Jesus is the truth and to be set free because the truth, Jesus will set you free. Friend, he loves you. Just hear this from God toward you. He, He loves you more than you've ever longed to be loved. He's not angry with you. He's angry over sin, including your sin. But that anger exists because it's keeping you from experiencing and knowing him. He loves you. He loves you so much that he put on flesh, stepped into the world like the doctor who flew his plane into the middle of the jungle so that he could deal with your sin. It was love and gentleness and compassion towards you. In fact, uh, he wants you to know the truth. He wants you to be with him. Look at his deepest desire. This is the night before Jesus endured the cross. We talk about what was the joy that was set before him. Well, we get a clue from his prayer here. Uh, Jesus is praying, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, and he speaks of they, we find out in another part of this prayer where Jesus says, I'm not just praying like for the 12 who are with me now, I'm praying for everyone who would ever believe because of them. That includes us. He says, my desire is that they may be with me where I am. That was the joy that was in front of him as he went to the cross. That you and I could be with him forever. He delights in it, friend, to be tender towards you and he he longs for you and I to come to him. Have I said it enough? Like I keep saying it because if you're like me, your, your head's a little thick and your heart can be a little cold at times. And you need to hear these things and be reminded of them over and over and over again. And they never lose their power. He can deal gently with us and he delights to, so come to him. As we wrap up, let me just, just say, come to him. If you've never come to him, what is the holdup? He longs for you to come to him. He's gentle. He loves you. If you've strayed and been wayward, you're like, I don't know that I can go back to him. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think he'd take, no, no you're, wrong. you're so wrong. Come to him. He delights for you to return to him. But Josh, you don't get it. You, you, don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know what's been done to me. Listen, let me tell you, at the foot of the cross, it does not matter. 
Jesus heals. He makes clean. And when you come to him, might I argue that he himself is comforted more than you will be. Jesus is comforted in our healing. It's because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of his body. When he suffers, or when we suffer, he suffers with us. You ever having like an ache in your arm or your back and like you can't sleep at night? And it messes with your head? <laughs> Does your head find relief? Finally, when the rest of your body finds relief? Yeah, and comfort, yeah. It's same with Jesus. When we're comforted, he's comforted. When, when we're healed, he gets joy and it increases. He, he longs for you to come to him. Paul writes about this metaphor in Ephesians 5. He says, no one's ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Jesus does the church because we're members of his body. And Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy could be full. And what's his joy? That you'd come to know him, that you'd come to him. You know, uh, as we wrap here, uh, probably the most significant commentary written uh, on the letter to the Hebrews was the work of a, another Puritan named John Owen. And uh, in 1684, he finished it. He wrote, uh, all of his works con combined uh, make up 23 volumes. Seven of those are on the New Testament book of Hebrews. It took him 20 years to write it. Just about the book of Hebrews. And uh, one of the things that he writes uh, is, is when we're told in Hebrews 5.2 that the, the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He says, here's what this means. This means Jesus can no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wanderings than a nursing father uh, should cast away a suckling child for its crying. Thus ought it to be with a high priest, and thus it is with Jesus Christ. He is able, with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people even as a nurse or nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant. Many of you are, are parents. Well, let me ask, uh, who gets more relief when uh, your baby waking up crying in the middle of the night, fussy, maybe uh, laying there in their own mess? Who gets more relief when they're cleaned up and finally laid down and back to sleep peacefully? Them or you? Yeah, you do, don't you? It's the same with Jesus. That's what Owen is saying here. He wouldn't cast you off any more than even the worst mom or dad would cast off their crying baby. He can't bring himself to stiff arm you in any way. He loves you. And he longs for you to come to him. And might I just say, to come to him with abandon. Like, just don't, don't hold back. You don't gotta clean it up. You don't need to think about it. Just come to him. He's waiting. He loves you. That, that's why 4.16 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near. With confidence. Translations might say with boldness. I'm just saying with abandon. Like, no hesitation. Come to him. Draw near to his throne of grace and you'll receive mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, Jesus says, from gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, it's kind. My burden's light. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and thank you for his heart toward me and toward us. Lord, it's hard to fathom sometimes that you do love us the way you do. That your heart toward us is gentle, but the truth of the matter is that, that you are. Lord, I pray uh, for my friends and for myself, we might be comforted by that truth today. That for those uh, who need to return to you, that they would even this morning, even in this moment. And Father, I pray for my friends who haven't 
come to you to begin with yet, that they would sense the goodness and gentleness and kindness of your heart by the power of your spirit today. And that even they might choose in this moment to come to you. Friend, let me just talk to you. If that's you, you need to know there's nothing about you that's hidden from God. And yet he still loves you more than you could ever dream. And his deepest desire is simply for you to come to him. And he waits for you with arms wide open. And you can come to him simply by faith, just saying, Jesus, I do, I come to you. I messed up, save me, forgive me, change me. And he promises to. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.